Welcome to Serenity and Leadership and our, our next podcast. And with me today, as usual, is Jessica, Jessica Bourne. Um, and today we're really lucky to have Joanna Montgomery. We're going to explore some of the things that made uh, you really stand out to me when I first heard you um, speak to a group. But I think the first question, Jessica, you, you had opened in mind. Well, so it's not so much a question as an opening quote to frame the conversation um, by Cedric Price. So technology is the answer, but what was the question? So we very often rush to develop new innovative technologies without really questioning why we need them and how they're going to enhance our lives. And I think you are very much answering that question. So I just kind of wanted to open with that quote to you and, and how that shapes your use and um, interventions with technology. So um, so just to explain what I do is I run a company that tries to use technology to facilitate human connection in situations where it's not usually possible and ideally without using a screen. So our first product um, called Pillotalk connects people that can't be in the same place at the same time using their heartbeats. So the way it works is each person has a wristband that they wear to bed and it picks up your heartbeat and sends the sound and the feeling of your heartbeat to a little device that another person has. So we sell a consumer product which is used mainly by couples in long distance relationships and military families. And then we also do a lot of work with children's hospitals. So we can send parents' heartbeats into children who are in intensive care or premature babies or anyone in a situation where they can't be like you know held or cuddled by another person so everything I do is fueled around a frustration around the way we use technology and how we consume it and like you said I feel like sometimes we start with an answer and I have a real frustration around the way we use screens because I feel like the screen was designed in the 1970s as a way for computer engineers to see what their code was doing inside their computer and at the time that was just the best solution and that was what was available and I feel like we took this piece of technology and then just ran with it and everything was about the screen and we made it bigger and then we made it smaller and then we made it really tiny and we stuck it on our wrist as a smartwatch and um, now people talk about how virtual reality is the next thing and I'm kind of like well we just took a screen and stuck it on her face. <laughs> like, why did we take this really piece of archaic technology and how did that become the thing that everything revolves around and all of our human interaction revolves around? And I feel like the screen is always seen as the answer, uh, often when there probably isn't a question. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so in those situations, like you said, <coughs> human contact and connection isn't possible. But when it is possible, what are the sort of non-technological ways that you think we can best foster more deeper, meaningful human connection? You mean non-technological, like when we're with each other in person? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the times technology just becomes a barrier, right? So we live in this world today where we think we're super connected to each other because we have instant connection in our pockets. But a lot of the time that actually detracts from really being present with someone. And 
I think that hyper connection is making us very disconnected just as humans and how we experience each other. So I think in terms of trying to connect better as humans, sometimes it's as simple as just not getting your phone out of your bag when you're with someone, like just choosing to be present with somebody and not be wondering what else is out there or what's happened on Instagram or have you missed a notification? Mm. Okay. Is there any other ways apart from just not using technology in terms of like what did, what does it feel like to you to feel truly connected to another person? Um, that's a big question. Uh, I think it's just being able to engage with somebody in a really authentic way whether that's like spending time with somebody or doing a shared activity with somebody or just having a really honest conversation or, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's <clears throat> I don't know all, all your story of how you got to where you are, but my sense was that this was a, this was a real journey and it was based on you having an idea which you really wanted to pursue. Uh, it became your passion. Mm-hmm. I'm really sort of curious about how, how, you, how you nurtured that passion and um, in, in, the, in the moments when you really felt, I, I don't know whether you experienced moments where, where you felt that it was too difficult or it was so hard um, you know, <clears throat> I remember some of the stories you talked about when you went to China for the first time, and um, but just having an idea and trying to pursue it. Um, I mean, what 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 would you say were the major challenges that you you had uh, in looking back you had to overcome? Um, so everything sort of started for me because I was studying interaction design, and when I started the course, which was 2006, it was, it was a really exciting point for interaction design and for technology and um, like that first iPhone had just come out and people loved how the iPhone unlocked or the Xbox 360 controller, people loved how that sat in their hands and I felt like we were really exploring all these different ways to use technology. And by the time I got halfway through my course, everything had become about smartphones and about these little screens we carried around in our pockets or sat in front of all the time. And so that was where the sort of seed of frustration came from. And I thought, you know, we've lost the interest and the excitement in exploring other ways to, to do things. And everything's just become about these little devices. And yes, it's cool now, but what's that going to look like in 10, 20 years time when and we, we we live our lives with these things in our pockets and our children are growing up with these things in their, in their pockets all the time and, and face down on screens all the time. And uh, like, bear in mind, this was nearly nine years ago. So this was sort of right at the beginning of, of smartphones becoming mainstream. And at the time, nobody, like I, I just sort of saw this trajectory that just didn't look that good in terms of human connection and how we experience each other and experience technology. And everybody else just seemed very caught up in the excitement of the technology. 
and nobody seemed to think what to seem to be thinking about what that might turn into. So that was the first point where I started to think, I want to do this differently, <laughs> or at least try and alter that trajectory slightly. So, um, I think even right from the beginning, I was sort of fighting a, I was going a different way from everybody else, whilst the world was really excited about what technology was was doing and capable of, and what other things we could connect to the internet. Um, I was on this this different path. So. Um, and that that was a sort of continual theme that continued to present itself, even in terms of um, like technology. Like the first version of the product, the technology wasn't really there yet for what I was trying to build. Um, the whilst lots of people did want the product, the general consumer approach, uh, not approach, um, the sort of general consumer mind frame wasn't there yet. Um, so I was like I was building a wristband three years before the first Fitbit, when people thought we would never wear technology on our wrists. And I think um, like the reason I started the company was because it was my university project, it went viral on the internet, and I had all these emails from people being like, oh my God, we want to buy this, we love this, we need this. And I, <laughs> like I never, I never set out to run a company, I set out to make this thing that these people wanted and give it to them and whenever things were really difficult or it felt like everything was going wrong it was those emails and the the constant interest I would get from those people that would be like this would make such a big difference in my life we really need this you know hurry up and make this those were the those were the things that got me out of the dark moments Mm That doesn't answer the question, does it? You asked what the biggest challenges were. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come to it or whatever. But it, it, no, it's, it, I think it's it's fascinating. It's it's really interesting. And to, to think that... <clears throat> I was going to ask you where um, where your drive came from. You know, is this something that you... What role models have you had? Or, or has the, have you just gone for it um, and just sourced all, all your your energy from within I mean, an awful lot of leaders when you look back uh, had a particular relationship with one or other of their parents or you know they had a role model that really inspired them how about for you um probably my dad actually mm. um, my dad runs his own company as well so i grew up in an environment where like my dad was his own leader and I had a, I had a, I was thinking about this earlier. I, I sort of, so my dad's also an engineer, so he's always very, I can, I'm one of those people that's sort of half creative, half technical, which is like a, a blessing and a curse. Um, I think I was a wildly creative child, and um, and so I sort of, I sort of grew up with this. On one hand, I was always told in a curse that like anything is possible. I, I always knew that was told that believed that but at the same time the engineer my dad has always been like yes but like <laughs> how are you going to do that or like be yeah be practical so mm. um that's been helpful because I now tend to think quite big but also I'm a realist so 
I suppose listening to you, it sounds like you didn't set out to be a leader that you kind of created. So you used your creativity and your engineering skills to create a product that then there was a demand for. So what were your initial experiences of kind of being put in that position? And then what have you kind of learned along the way about what kind of, I mean, first of all, do you consider yourself to be a leader? No, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. So can you tell us a bit about why you don't consider yourself to be a leader then? Um, I, I don't know, I just never thought of it that way before. I mean, I suppose in a lot of ways, this has always been about trying to change our relationship with technology and that was always the, the mission. And I, I know I was one of the first people to to build a piece of really human technology and I know the product is wildly, widely regarded as one of the first products of its kind so I guess in, in some ways I'm aware that Visionary, you're going to have to use that word leader <laughs> <laughs> own it <laughs> in some ways I guess some people could argue that I'm a leader but um, I don't really I never really thought of it that way but is it because you feel like you're not leading people directly? I don't know how many people work with you, but it's more that you're leading in terms of like presenting a vision for how we could do things differently, which is another form of leadership, perhaps. Possibly. I mean, I sort of fell into it. Like my, like I said, it was my university project and it, it just almost overnight went viral on the internet and I started to get all these emails and like the video had all these views and it just it was like the snowball it just sort of took on this life of its own and it was because of that interest that I thought well you know if these people want this thing I'll build it and give it to them famous last words <laughs> didn't realize how difficult that would be but um yeah it, there, there were times when and there still are times when that can be quite stressful because there was always that expectation on me because I had done this thing which was just an idea and it just went in my degree project and then suddenly everybody wanted it and I was like okay I'll make it and then everybody was like well where is it mm -hmm. and when people want something like you can't do anything fast enough every time there's a problem everybody's unhappy um, I did and still sometimes do get a lot of hate mail uh, from yeah. people I read that on mm. your news page on your website because mm. I, I love that you're so transparent about the whole journey that you've taken to get this made and when I read that some people were sending when you know they didn't receive it in time they were sending mm. you really hateful messages I kind of there's there's such a an ironic thing to you're trying to create something to create more human connection and then you're getting the opposite of that from the people that want your product so yeah how did that actually affect you in this journey I'm I consider myself quite a thick-skinned person, but when it's your thing and it's something that you have spent so long building and something you really care about, like it does get to you, like you just and especially when you've put so much of yourself into it, because it's like it's all pretty much all I did for the last like eight years, and even at the point when we launched the crowdfunding campaign and we were taking pre-orders, I had just worked on it relentlessly. And then you get emails from some keyboard warrior on the other side of the world, just like, you don't care about us, you've just like run off with our money. And you're sitting there thinking, like, I haven't slept more than four hours a night for however many weeks, or, you know, I'm sitting in 
China on my own trying to do this thing to, to, to make good on this promise I made to all these people and then people are emailing you saying oh you don't care and and you're like you've you you've no idea and I mean it's why I try to be so transparent about yeah. the process because I was like look at the end of the day I'm one person that had this idea that got a bit out of hand and I tried to do it and I've made that promise to you and I've made that commitment and now I've taken your money as a pre-order and I'm like I'm gonna make you a product <laughs> and you know forgive me while I iron out the bumps because I haven't done this before but yeah no the hate mail can be can be grueling and so thinking a little bit about then maybe being put into this position that may or may not be a leadership <laughs> position, do you do you have any sense of where that resistance is coming from in terms of your broader perception of what it means to be a leader? Uh, probably human nature, right, isn't it? Like, I guess, like, people tend to, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know, I just never thought, I just felt, I felt, I felt really put on the spot there when you are like, you're a leader. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Me? <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess in some ways I am. Um, what are the qualities that you you look for in other leaders? Um, I look for authenticity a lot, I think. I think especially in the business world we hear we see a lot of success stories and we hear about a lot of overnight successes but we very rarely see the like the struggle or the bad side of it so I really like it when people are just human and just talk about both sides of both well all sides of being a human being and you know some days are good but not all days are good and I think, yeah, in a leader, I look for authenticity and transparency about that. And you seem to have both of those qualities. <laughs> and perseverance, I think. That yeah. not giving up, which is very admirable. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, something that, that we're, we spend a lot of time looking at, really, which is... The dynamics between men and women um, <clears throat> in in uh, well in life, but in business in particular. What's it been like being a young woman creating a business, uh, and that journey? Uh, okay. The whole female thing is interesting. So, I studied interaction design, which was pretty much computer science. It was in the school of computer science, and. Uh, there were only two other girls in my course, so there was a huge gender imbalance on our course, but it was just never a thing at university. Like, it just never, it never came up. We never talked about it. We were never like, oh, there's only three of us. It just wasn't a talking point. And I was really surprised when I then left university, started a business, and suddenly everybody was like, what's it like to be a woman? And I was like, what <laughs> uh, so that was something I really wasn't prepared for and I wish I could say that it hasn't mattered but there definitely have been times where it has been a thing um, there are times when I think I've been taken less seriously than I 
would have been if I was a man. Um, I think some of that challenge comes from the fact my product can be seen as quite sort of girly or romantic. So sometimes I think the juxtaposition of my product and me being female has been a difficult one. Um, I once had an investor tell me he would invest in my business but only if I stepped down as CEO and hired a man because men are better at running a business than women. I was wondering if you were going to say that because um, one of the stats that um, I think is very ironic is that um, venture capitalists uh, really favour men when they're going, they're looking for, for, for money, for backing, and yet the stats would say that actually women entrepreneurs are way more successful and it's about 30% mm. extra return the, the VCs get if only they would invest equally in, 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 in the woman. I think some of that is unconscious bias mm. and I think because there are just fewer female VCs than men I think people naturally are more comfortable with what they know like as well researched factors we are most comfortable with other people that are like us so I think that is inherently where that problem comes from is that people that think they're making fair decisions are subconsciously favouring people that are more like them and just because the majority of VCs are white middle class men they are backing other white middle class men mm. not that that makes it all right no no yes <laughs> <clears throat> but you know one could say well if they were canny investors they'd uh... well I agree I think we need more canny investors have you got another project up to your sleeve or you uh... well, I could tell you but I'd have to kill you <laughs> <laughs> um, no I'm, well I'm working on a few things we'll see what happens are they, well, I kind of want to ask you, I guess, a broader question about your vision for how tech can be used in other ways for good, um, without you having to disclose any <laughs> secrets about your upcoming projects. Um, I mean, it's about everybody, right? It's about everybody, not just about the people building the tech, but us as consumers and how we choose to use it. Because I think the people... The, the huge companies of which there are only a few key players are building things which don't really look after us as humans but if we continue to just always buy the products and always use the products and if we don't push back and we don't question that we just accept that and we just enable them to continue building technology that is not aligned with the interests of humanity so I think as consumers um, we all have a responsibility to expect more from technology and I think the people who are building things should be should be building things that are better for us as as humans and I think there, some of it is possibly an education thing uh, particularly with children I think uh, we're only just beginning to understand the implications of mm. technology use on children and like it's not looking good shock horror um but i think some of that comes from an ignorance of of the technology we're using and what it does to us or how it's um swaying us or or swaying our voting habits or our 
our purchase habits as consumers or even like I would dread to be I would hate to be a teenager in the world today like being on Facebook and Instagram and having to always see everybody's glossy lives and these best versions of themselves they're, prevent, they're presenting I, I don't know how that's going to manifest itself when those people are adults um, so yeah I think technology just needs to do better and I think as people we need to ask for better it's uh, it's ironic, isn't it, that <clears throat> Steve Jobs, who said uh, something like, I, I never use focus groups, because <clears throat> if you get focus groups, they'll tell you that they want the product that, that's already out there, they want it smaller and faster. They don't make the quantum leap to the new um, product, and that's <clears throat> sort of balancing that with what you're saying, which is... Well, I'm I'm hearing really that, that there's some soul missing. Is that I mean, does, would you agree with that? Is that is that a way to put it? Sounds like responsibility to me, though. I think it's just a lack of humanness, yeah. which I guess could be put as lack of soul. I think I think the point here is is about um, looking to create something that has soul or has that humanity. As opposed to, this is going to make us a bunch of money. Mm. I mean, it's a hard sell, trying to get people to, yeah, to change their behaviour or change their expectations. And I think for us, the way we found is best to do it is to help people experience it. So, like the product, uh, like Pillow Talk itself, when you explain it, it sounds really wacky, and I know it sounds really wacky. But then when I get it out and I show it to you, and you you experience the sound and the feeling of a heartbeat or if somebody loves heartbeat you're like ah I can I see I'd see how that makes sense I would see how I would want that if my child was in hospital or I'm away from my husband or my wife when they're gone and so for us the a key part in the journey was trying to share that experience and to open people's minds to the possible just by giving them even a little snippet of what that future might look like or how things could be different and that's how we sort of started to mm. steer people along a potentially different trajectory it's it's ironic in a way because at an energetic level you'd say that if you're if you're in love with someone you are connected wherever they are and what you're doing is providing a technological proof in a sense um, and helping people feel that connection, where actually some people would say that that's something that we've lost, is that ability to know that we're connected and feel that connection. And yet you've got people on opposite sides of the, the world and you think of something at the same time. Mm. You know, So, so that, that connection is there. It, 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 it's like you're highlighting it in a, at a time when so few people are have that sensitivity to know that they're connected anyway. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole point of the product was to try and connect people in a more passive way. Mm. So, um, like at the minute, you know, we, we have all these ways to connect with people. We have, we can video call them, we can message them at any point, we can interrupt them, or we can ask them to schedule time into their day to sit down on a video call and talk to us. But that is... 
so different to actually being with somebody and having that connection. Like if you um, if you live with somebody and you come home, you both sit in the same room at night and enjoy each other's, like spend time in each other's presence. You don't necessarily talk to each other or engage with each other. Maybe two people do two different things, but you're still spending that time together. And technology doesn't let you just sit in the same room as somebody else, which was what we set out to do, because I think technology technology should serve us and can be a solution but it should sit in the background and it should make our lives easier and it should facilitate things but it shouldn't distract us or interrupt us yeah it's making me think of another quote and I don't remember who said it but that we're feeling beings who think not thinking beings who feel and I think we have become a bit desensitized and we Mm. have lost Mm the value of feeling and when you're talking about making providing a way for your customers to experience the product very often we don't know how we feel about something until we experience it because Mm. how would we know we can think of Mm. like what you know our reaction to seeing what a product is on a on the on your website but that's going to be based on our judgments and perceptions and past experiences and things. But then when we actually experience it, it's a completely different thing because we're really feeling it in ourselves. And that's where you create change and connection, I suppose. We're human beings, not human doings. Yeah, another great one. Yeah, so it's the feeling and, and the being Yeah. as opposed to the thinking and doing. Well, that's what we're meant to do as human beings. We're, we're meant to experience the world. Like I think that's why we've lost a bit of humanness with technologies because we're fundamentally tactile beings we're, we're meant to pick things up and feel them and experience them by their shape and their texture and and other people and hugging them and and and, and now we just we use screens a lot and everything's become very flat and we've sort of lost that mm-hmm. bit and so much of that tactility tactility and the sort of 3D nature of those things is what we've lost, which is what's making us slightly less human, I think. Mm. And less creative, I think, as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes use Play-Doh in workshops and it's amazing. Mm. Just giving an adult a lump of Play-Doh yeah. is mind-blowing for them because they forget that they ever do anything creative yeah. or tactile. It's because we never get bored anymore. Because we, we can't. Because I think boredom fosters creativity because when you're like 10 years ago if you were at home and you had nothing to do or you had an hour to spare you would read a book or do something or fix something or make something or cook something whereas now you probably sit and scroll through Instagram until you have to leave or you would just do nothing which is the being and we don't that's I think also why we don't have good quality being anymore because we're always distracted and then a lot of people I think are sort of somewhat now have a fear of being alone yeah. and doing nothing and not being distracted. And, and noise is another thing. You, you find, <clears throat> the number of people I talk to and they say, yeah, well, uh, I've got the, the TV on in the background or I've got the radio on. And they're not listening to it. They're not watching it. They need the noise. Mm. It, they, they get a sense of um, security out of just the, the noise. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because that's... When you're in silence... What does that do? Where does it take you? Inside yourself. It, that's the point. It, you, 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 uh, and that's what people are terrified of. Um, and so, 
well again it's something that we're we're i think we we see as being really important is 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 um creating spaces where people can get in touch with themselves mm. i was reading a paper the other day that was talking about how um how we process information and how you do something or you do a task and it's when you go away afterwards and you're you're just walking somewhere or having a shower or just doing some other mundane task that's when all the all the processing happens and when your brain does all the thinking and decides what the output is and all those things but and how today that we're we're having like technology is having a really negative impact on that because we don't give ourselves that space to process those things because we never have that downtime or that empty time where <clears throat> our bodies aren't really doing anything else and we can do that because mm-hmm. in that downtime we now look on our phones or watch Netflix or we're consuming something which is on a high level just distracting our brains enough to stop us dealing with all those things we need to deal with. Mm. Which is why nature is so important yeah. and why you advocate it so much. It's going out and being quiet, <coughs> being in a, an environment where actually you're in touch with something that, that is so grounded and fundamental. Mm. Yeah, because I suppose your product is very much about connecting people to other people, but are there ways that you can see that we could use technology to like maybe connect with ourselves more or connect with nature more? I mean, obviously we can just go out and be in nature, but it's kind of that all of this fear about being and silence is maybe because we don't know how to look inward and we don't know how to connect. I mean, I think a lot of people have tried, right, and technology has tried, uh, particularly with the the wearables movement. There was a lot of, you know, all the quantified self and the tracking and the, I think there was a definitely a period of time where we thought that being, you know, knowing better about our sleep or how many steps we've done or all these things could help us. And I think on some level they probably do, but at the same time it's maybe another distraction or another thing to think about that we don't need and I've often, I think te- there's p- possibly a way that technology could be used to help us filter what's important to us, even in terms of notifications or what's connected in our homes. Or you know, I think there's possibility for exploration in that place in terms of how can we choose what we want to know about and what we don't and what interrupts us and what doesn't and what we do track about ourselves and we we don't mm. i'd like to take you a little bit uh, out of that for a minute because when you went to china was this the first place you'd actually had to do business with outside the uk no okay so uh because for me it's, it's like i think of china and i think it couldn't be more different. China has been the place that has had the biggest um, challenges in terms of language and cultural differences and what I was trying to, like the complexity of what I was trying to do and even the amount of money I was spending on doing that thing and if it had gone wrong, what that would have cost. So tell the story about the, the cable. And the quality of the cable. Ah, the cable. Cable gate. Um, cable gate. So when you... Uh, so when I designed the product, obviously a lot of it was, as I've said before, I cared a lot about the experience and what the product was like to use. And one of the things I cared a lot about was 
sort of the finish of everything, the finish of the plastic, the tactility of it all. Um, one of the things I spent a long time doing was choosing the perfect cable. And I wanted it to have just the right wiggliness and the right texture and I just wanted the end I just I spent a lot I looked at a lot of cables and when you make a product you do what's called a pre-production run which is where you make sort of 100 200 of the thing just to basically test the assembly line make sure the process works that everything fits together right that there are no gaps in the process and uh, when that's done and all the bits are picked, you sign off, you sign everything off to say, this is it, the process is fine, all the bits are fine, make me thousands, just like that. Uh, so that happened and I think I went, I'd come home again and then went back to China and I was in China and we'd been doing all this manufacturing and we were getting quite close to the end and we were getting very close to Christmas and uh, we were in a factory one day and I just looked around and there's this massive pile of cables it's like five or ten thousand cables and uh, I picked one up and I said what's this <laughs> and they said that's your cable and I was like this is not my cable this is this is not the cable and they're like oh it's fine it's just a cable and I was like oh it's not just a cable and by that point I'd been in China for weeks on my own I'd be making hundreds of decisions every single day on my own and yeah, the cable became this real point of contention because I knew it was not right and everybody else just wanted to get the thing finished, put them on the box, get them out before Christmas and they were like, it's fine, it's fine, just just go with it. And that was one of the most testing points along the journey because I, I, was, I was stuck in this in another country where nobody else spoke my language and I was like, am I right here or am I just so entrenched in this thing that I can't see reason, logic and that maybe the cable is fine? Uh, in the end, I just decided the cable was not fine. Mm. And we uh, for, we drove all over China. Not all over China. We, we, yeah, we found another cable and it was fine in the end. But that was a bad so, Tell me a little bit about what it was that made you stick to your guns where did that feeling come from? Because this was you trusting yourself mm. when everything was saying, just go with it. Go, you know, go with this. Don't go into this difficult place. So I'm a huge believer in gut instinct. And it's always when people ask me what my best advice is for anything ever, it's always to trust your gut instinct. And that is a lesson I learned Quite early on, um, I uh, took an investment deal, which, again, everything was saying, do it. And the only thing that didn't say do it was my gut instinct. And at the time, I was like 22, 23, and I let somebody who I believed was smarter than me and more experienced than me talk me into making a decision I just didn't really want to make uh, because I thought they knew better. And, yeah, so I took a deal that I didn't feel good about and it turned out to be a huge disaster. So I learned the very difficult and expensive way not to ignore your gut instinct. And at the time, the person said to me, like, you know, you can't run a business on gut instinct. And I look back now and I'm like, he was so wrong. Like, you, I think you absolutely can run a business on gut instinct and I think you should, and you should base all of your business and personal decisions on your gut instinct. 
So how do you access it? Well, you know, <clears throat> for some people, I, I, well, I suspect for a lot of people, mm. gut instinct means something to them. But mm. what what does it mean? How do you how do you feel it? What's the process for you? Oh, it's just there, isn't it? <laughs> Everyone's like, use this cable, and there's a little bit of me going, don't use the yeah, cable. Where's that? What what is that? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess it is a tricky one because. I was going to say you can just tell because it's uncomfortable, but then there are a lot of times when it's good to be uncomfortable and if you didn't persevere through uncomfortableness, mm. you would never grow. Um, I don't really have the answer. Is it your gut? I think sometimes it can literally be your gut. Mm. Like, there have been... I think this is something I've sort of only come around to the to accepting recently but I think a lot of the things we carry inside us um emotionally or mentally can manifest themselves as physical symptoms so I think a lot of people if they are having uh, problems with a part of their body that it actually can be something a lot bigger and something my teacher always says is Hmm. um the body never lies yeah we just don't listen to it yeah uh, and <clears throat> again, something that we're trying to do is to help people get into a place where in the silence, in that peace, you can actually begin to receive, <clears throat> hear what the body is saying to you. Mm. Yeah. That's just so f- fundamental. I think we're nearing the end of our time. So shall we bring it back to leadership and I suppose if if you continue to grow and develop new ideas and new offers of how technology can create further human connection and you come round to the idea of <laughs> really being yeah, yeah. a leader where do you see that going and what have you learned on the way and, and how will that shape how you go forward um I think I think I'm just always trying to be the change I want to see in the world and I think I will probably always just continue to try and do that in whatever form it takes and via the medium of whatever opportunities present themselves or that I create along the way Um, I still don't really know what that's going to look like um, but I do hope that I can continue to be I don't know I just always want to be championing what I care about even if everybody else thinks I'm crazy mm-hmm. and I know with pillow talk it was a bit of a a bit of a not a slog it wasn't a bad thing but in terms of like even at the time people thought it was crazy and then there was like a long period in the middle where everybody thought I was still crazy but now people are kind of like oh well actually that made sense and actually you you were kind of ahead of the curve there in terms of that so I hope I can continue to do things like that and that I guess maybe I'm a leader in some ways Um, so I guess I mean yeah if I am a leader then I hope to continue to lead from creativity and courage and innovation I think and authenticity and transparency (laughs) 